You are listening to Ignite Radio Live's special coverage of the 2019 Kingdom Builders Reception, featuring special keynote by Joe Campo, founder and producer of Grassroots Films, short presentations by Greg and Stephanie Schleter with Walt Erickson and Deacon Rick Nelson. If you want to find out more how you and your family can more deeply encounter Jesus Christ as a way of life to truly live what we profess, go to massimpact.us. I am one of seven children, six boys. We grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And you would know our yard if you drove around, and we would direct people this way to say, you're going to go buy some yards that are very flush green. When you get to ours, you're going to know because it's just a burnt out yard, okay? Six boys, constantly playing sports. It was just burnt out. My dad, I distinctly remember the day, he just, you know, kind of threw away the seed and everything else, and I'm done. I just, I can't keep up with this. So we played a lot of sports, and what was interesting is, God has humor, adjacent to our house was the Tucker house. Mrs. Tucker was the complete opposite. She was a green thumb. She was out in January, February, March, already attending to her beautiful foliage and trees and everything else. And so you might imagine it was very difficult without a fence for us to keep said balls and such in our yard. And we had this kind of love-hate relationship with her um, because uh, when the ball would go over into her yard, she would just pick it up and put it in her garage. So we were confident that she had kind of like a Schleter sports shop in her garage. She just accumulated tennis balls and soccer balls and footballs. And we just kept asking our dad, who was busy. He was a CEO of a hospital and very frugal, but I just think he didn't know why, Dad, we need another basketball, we need another football, and he, we just accumulated. So over the year, they had the Schleter Sports Shop, I'm sure, in their garage. So at the age of sixth grade, my brother Bart, I'm the second of the six boys, the youngest is a girl, my older brother Bart says, you know, we need to take action. Okay, brother Bart, what do we want to do? Well, Mom and Dad are gone, and we have some produce in our refrigerator. And so my older brother, Bart, eighth grade, thought that we would retaliate against the Tuckers around supper time. So he handed me two eggs. I'm in sixth grade. He handed my brother, Marty, two eggs. And he directed us, opened the screen door, and we directed us to Tucker's house. And so my brother, Marty, now this is peculiar. He's in fifth grade. I'm in sixth grade. They've got a big bay window out back, and they're eating supper. Now, First of all, this is as debaucherous as it gets. I'm not glorifying this, but I just got to tell you. So here's Marty, who would one day be a surgeon. You'd never know this. He's not hiding behind a tree. He's practically showing them the eggs. Hi, Tuckers. I've got eggs. I think I'm going to throw them at you. This is what my older brother told me to do. So he launches the eggs. I'm behind a tree. I launch my eggs. So we come racing back. You know, my brother opens the door, closes it, you know, closes the curtains or whatever. And, you know, we're like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? Mrs. Tucker comes knocking on the door. I saw you. I saw you. You threw these eggs. Of course, our adrenaline's running. We're lying. My older brother, Bart, you know, Mrs. Tucker, we would never do that. I'm your paper boy, as if that's supposed to be the mark of sainthood or whatever. So we're scared. She says she's going to call the police. So in the interim time, I can conceive of this idea that we're going to tell the police that our house was egged also, that somebody came running through the neighborhoods. So I'll go to the front of our house and I egg our house also. (laughs) So um, the police come over, she comes over, and we're lying through our teeth. We're scared because we have consciences, but, you know, we're already in this, right? We're we're steps gone. And uh, we tell the police, you know, we're sorry. We just saw somebody come through the neighborhoods that egged our house. We got away with it. Now, to my brother's credit, Bart, a few days later, 
he confessed it. He took took us by the hand, well, not really by the hand, Marty and me, over to Tucker's house, and we confessed that we did this. So there's a story in this. One is why I'm not behind bars at this point in my life. But there were gifts that were exercised in that scenario. There was some athletic dexterity. There was maybe some genius or some sense of thoughtfulness about how to deal with the situation. There was a gift of a sense of community, a sense of uh, mission of accomplishing something. All these blessings that I was given and we were given were misdirected to lesser things. And I think tonight, and what we're about as married couples is to ask, what are those gifts we've been given? Are we using the blessings that God has given us for the purpose for which they've been given? Are we asking what is most important with our time, with our money, with our resources? Now, I know, kindred with all of you, that you are all profound blessings to us, that you're in the game. We're blessed, truthfully, with the resources that God has given us to at least be on that map and to be asking this question. And I think focus events like Rich's Cancer, like Joe Worth's situation, like the McDonough's, you know, the loss of their nine-month-old, focus events, we've all had them. They're events that cause us to ask, what is most important? What am I living for? And if you're like me, you're challenged to ask the question, if it was important, at the height of Rich and Connie wondering, oh, Lord, I've got a business, I've got a family, what am I going to do? Or the McDonough's. If it's important in those moments of seeing clearly, it's important all the time. And tonight, so I raise the question again, what is most important that we share in this culture, at this point in history, a desire to see clearly what is most important, to use those gifts and talents and resources for the purposes for which they have given. So, two simple quotes that I think help clarify what mass impact is really all about. And they're both by John Paul II. The first is, the future of humanity passes by way of the family. Of all of the things that we can put our time and energy into, and there are many wonderful things, Society bears this truth. Theology bears this truth. Sociology bears this truth. There is nothing more significant than marriage and family. How we focus and contribute to our marriages and families directly translates into the way our culture looks. So the second quote, as Greg said, from John Paul II, families become who you are. JP2 is reminding us that it's in our very being, it's in our fabric, it's how we were created to image the Trinity, a constant outpouring of love. And we are blessed through Mass Impact and your support and your witness that that does become a culture in our homes of praying and talking. It has struck me in the last few months even, the numbers of people who have commented on things that have truly changed their life, whether it be a marriage or um, decisions as teenagers or just in moments where they really needed that encompassing family love and we had no clue what may have been going on in these individual lives. And it wasn't a profound conversation or a profound moment of you know, worship in our living room or fill in the blank, all of these things that have come to us have been simple conversations, have been simple interactions, have been simple becoming who we are. 
and that's just the normal culture of Catholic life. And so we thank you for your support in that, and we encourage you to continue that. Spirit break out. Heaven come down. Thanks, Greg. Steph. Yeah, we know each other for at least 25 years, and um, honestly, I don't remember the last time we saw each other, but it was many, many years. Well, other than that, it's a comedian in every group, right? We've had so many encounters like this with the youth, with the gangs, uh, with the young men at the St. Francis House over the years, that I, I don't keep track of them, quite frankly, because I know in my heart of hearts, it's all a work of God, you know. And, you know, for the amount of time that I've been here, which has only been a couple hours, you know, is that I've also heard and seen a tremendous amount of suffering in this room, in your families. No matter where I go in the world, I, I, I get have the opportunity to do a lot of traveling. Same everywhere I go. It seems like everyone is suffering tremendously in their families, with their children, themselves, and my own family. I'm not exempt, you know. Um, but one thing that, that holds us together, the glue, is Christ, obviously. You know, I live in a hipster neighborhood now in Brooklyn. When I first moved in there, we moved in there because it was very, very poor. Now you can't touch the place. It's unbelievable. I got, I actually, I have real estate people knocking on my door. And when the Hasidic Jews come in, they usually tell me, everybody's got their price. Everybody. What's your price? I said, well, what's it worth? He said, I'll give you $2 million cash. I said, I'll take 10. You're crazy? You're crazy. You son of a... <laughs> Seriously. I said, well, that's what I'll take, 10, because it's not for sale. No one's going to give you 10. Now, I come from Long Island. I was never in Brooklyn unless I visited family who never made it to Long Island. And the reason, actually, I tell you, I got into photography was because when I was in high school, I wanted to take an automotive course, and it turns out that all the guys that I was in that class with had their Italian shirts, you know, with the cigarettes rolled up and the camels up there, and they had dirt under their nails, and I was like, my teacher told me, look, this is not for you, you know, take a photography class, which I did, and I must have been about 14 or 15 years old, but what I recognized in the photography was beauty. I wasn't just running around just taking photographs for the sake of taking photographs. There was something inside me that was searching for beauty. And when I found that beauty, I felt that beauty. And I have to tell you, I also heard that beauty in music. And so whatever the talents that God, was, that God gave me when I was born, they were, beginning, they were beginning to grow. And my mother always spoke about the poor. And so that always touched me in my heart. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get someplace because all the suffering that I'm listening to and all the suffering that I hear, like I said, it's Christ that unites us. It's the glue that holds us together. But in my neighborhood, in my neighborhood, they're pagans. So now I'm friends with some of the people on the block. And of course, it says the St. Francis House. You can read that sign. And they want to know what that is. And I tell them. They don't get it. Their parents didn't teach them, you see. I was fortunate. 
My mother taught us, my father taught us about our faith. Now, we did not go to church every Sunday, the family, but I did for some reason. I did. I was the guy, you know. Actually, I'm divorced, just so you know, and my ex-wife calls me Father Joe. Good, because she used to call me a lot worse. I see all the suffering, and, and you know, one person had told me, uh, he said, well, Joe, he goes, I know you're a Catholic, but I'm an atheist. I said, really? I said, I have to tell you the truth. I never met an atheist I didn't like. And he said, well, you mean you like really like, like me? I said, listen, you're a great person. I don't know how you get out of bed in the morning, because if I didn't believe what I believe, I wouldn't even get out of bed. There's no reason. I know what's on the other side. I believe it. I'm looking forward to it. He goes, what, you want to die? I said, not today, you know. But do, do I want to die? I'm going to die. Not what I want. I'm going to die. When God calls, no one says no. You don't get the option. I love taking the new young men who come to the St. Francis house to live with us. It's a home for where guys need a second chance in life. I take a walk through the cemetery. It's very quiet. I go, take a look. One day your name is going to be on one of these tombstones, and I'm probably going to pay for it if I'm still around, unless you change your ways. And you kind of put death right in their face. I want to deal with that reality with them. You know, a lot of our guys that come through the house have been suffering their whole entire lives. All of them have one thing in common. All of them. They have no father. We live in a fatherless society. Your children are very fortunate. You probably don't even realize it. And that's probably a good thing. Fatherless society. What does that mean to a young man who's 17 or 18 years old? You wonder why the different cultures are not seeking into their hearts? Why they're totally, 100% confused about who they are what they're about, what they're supposed to do, and what is a man? They have no idea. They've seen men come in and out of their mother's bedrooms. They don't know what they So that's what they think you're supposed to do. Until they meet me, and I, right in the head. It's not going to happen if you're going to live in the St. Francis house. And I'm going to tell you why. You know? And they'll listen. And they will listen. It's not easy to live in the St. Francis house, especially if you spent time in jail or you've done drugs, and you think you're God. So usually I tell, you know, all the young men when they, when they first come, and I go, you know who's in charge of this house, right? And they go, oh, yeah, you, Joe. I go, no, 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 no. God's in charge of this house. I'm taking orders from him. You've got nothing to say. That's how we're going to start. That's how it's going to be, because it's the truth. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you like me or you don't like me. It would be nice if you did. It would be nice if we liked each other. But at the end of the day, I have a responsibility to answer to God, not you. And I'm going to do that to, best, to the best of my ability because that's what men do. And that's like the first lesson. That's what men do. They stand up and they're strong and they don't give up. Now, these guys, most of the guys either have uh, brought themselves up or they were raised by their mom. I've had plenty of moms tell me, 
listen, Joe, you don't understand. I'm the mother and I'm the father. And I said, no, you don't understand. You're the mother. Don't tell your son you're his father because you're not. Now, you bring home the money and you do all the things that dad is supposed to do, but you're not his father. Don't play dad. You're confusing the boy. Don't do it. And so I was running this project called Youth 2000, which was Eucharistic-centered retreats that Greg was sharing with you. All the boys in the house had to participate in Youth 2000 retreats. Now, were they going to be on their knees in front of the Blessed Sacrament? No. I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I said, okay, uh, when you move into the house, you have to get your license. So this guy's going to drive the truck. This guy, these other guys are going to load the truck. When we get there, we're going to put up the flags. We're going to set up the burning bush. And they're going to be my security team because I'm going to have 1,000 kids. And here I am putting a bunch of guys who probably were in jail who just became security. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. But it works because I gave them responsibility where they would have to have honesty and integrity. And you want to know something? They did it. They did it. I mean, I took a chance. I took a risk. So what? We did it. You know, A lot could go wrong in some of these environments. And a lot did go wrong. We, we, had a, we, we were told that one guy had a gun one time. And so I said to my security team, go upstairs, lock the gates behind you, go bring me back the gun. They're the only guys that could have done it, quite frankly. And they did. And now I'm holding a gun. So anyway, I bring the gun home, of course, but we found the young man who had the gun, and I said, Who's, it was in his bag, and it wasn't his, of course, you know. I never met anybody that was guilty that's been in jail anyway. So I, 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 said, I said, you know, are there any more weapons? I need to know, and I need to know now. And he goes, listen, I, I can't say anything to you. I said, okay. Have you ever been to jail? He goes, no. I said, where are you going tonight? Guys, hold him. And then he just started screaming his guts. Well, we got a machete over here, and then we got this over here. And I go, a machete? What do you think you were going? <laughs> but it was my security team who found them, who kept us safe. Amazing. You know? And they were proud of themselves. They were proud of themselves because something could have went very, very bad that night. You know? They kind of saved us. But it was Christ in their, it was Christ in their lives now that were protecting these people. I'm amazed when I, when I think about these things, that, you know, that these things have happened, you know? Now, everybody that comes to the St. Francis house wants to give me advice. All the young men want to give me advice, you know? And I usually tell them I just don't take advice from adolescents. It's just one of those things, you know? What's really amazing to me is that when you're working with the poor, they will teach you what life is about through their lives and through their suffering. You know, we're determined on who we are. Uh, we, you know, we think about ourselves. Uh, after we come out of the suffering, you know, what, what grace was involved there? There's always grace involved there. If you don't give up and if you don't give in, keep going. There should be more groups like this around the country, without a doubt. You know, and m maybe that's what you need to do. You know, um, I made a few notes earlier about what I was going to speak about, and there was one story that I wanted to tell you because my experience with the poor 
was I was walking down the street with three of the guys, and um, we were going to go get some lunch, and they wanted to go to McDonald's, not my favorite place. And I said, no, we're not going to go to McDonald's. We'll find some other place. And they knew if they asked me enough that I probably would break down, and I did. So, but before we go into McDonald's, there's some homeless people that live on the street right outside there. And one of the guys' names is Tommy, and I know Tommy on a first-name basis. I go, Tommy, how you doing today? And he gives me the finger. I said, are you hungry? And he gives me the finger. I took that as a yes. <laughs> Two fingers. <laughs> right? So I said, all right, listen, I'll get you your ham sandwich that you like with mayonnaise on it before we go in to get ours. And he's cursing at me, and he's doing, you know. So he goes, and don't forget the coffee. <laughs> I said, okay, I won't forget the coffee, Tommy. And I'm going over to the deli, and the guy's like, Joe, why are you letting this guy abuse you? I mean, if I ever spoke to you like that, boom, I get one. I said, look, he's, he's upset, he's angry, uh, he, he's angry at the world. He's not, he, I'm not taking it personally, he's not angry at me. He's not angry at me, but he's angry. Anyway, so I come back to Tommy, and I've got his ham sandwich. And I go, Tommy, here's your sandwich. He goes, you got the coffee? I go, here's the coffee. I, I'm feeling all holy at this moment, right? And I got these guys watching me. And I'm like, well, Tommy, did you say your prayers today? He goes, well, how do you think I got the sandwich? <laughs> True story. True story. If you get the opportunity to watch a poor person pray, they'll teach you how to pray. We know what we're supposed to do. We've been taught well, thank God. It's all a good thing. But are you praying from your heart? See, that's the difference. I watch people who are sick and people who are dying, and I watch them pray. And man, those are prayers. You know God hears their prayers. He has to hear their prayers. Watch a poor person pray who really needs something. You know, I'll go home tomorrow and, you know, I can open up my refrigerator and eat anything I want, you know. So can you. But when a person's really hungry and they're praying for food, like Tommy, he got it. He got it. And God used me. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. You know, of course I, I wanted to do something good for him if I could. Did I, did I know that God was using me in that way? That this man was praying? He must have said to himself, boy, that was quick, right? <laughs> it, happened, it happened one time, actually, when we were, we were just getting off the trains, and um, my friend Cliff had a hamburger with him, and we were kind of like, we're moving really fast in the city. We're kind of walking real by, and, and, and so uh, some, some guy says, hey, I'm really hungry, and Cliff just hands him his hamburger as he's walking, and the guy yelled out, that was quick, that was quick, yeah. When you really look at what the saints went through, how many of us want to mimic what they suffered? Poor St. Francis, my hero. Poor Francis. You know, you probably already know this, but, you know, St. Francis just wanted to be like, he wanted to be a knight in shining armor. He died on the ground with nothing. Two holes in his hands, two holes in his feet, a hole in his side. He died with nothing. The, this is the Catholic Church. It's a hospital it's just a hospital for us, for everyone. A lot of people that come to the Catholic Church think they're going to find a whole bunch of holy people. Then they meet us. 
with our own suffering and everything else that's going on and the things that happen to us and the things we've done to other people, you know. But this is our way to salvation. This is our way. This is it. We have the Eucharist. We have confession. We have Mass. And if you're not praying the rosary, you should. Because you know what? (laughs) When the Blessed Mother appeared in 1917, and I'm not saying that this is a, you know, oh my God, we should all be worried about, you know, the end times. Because if I walk out the door and get hit by a bus, the end times just happen for me, you know? So you don't know that. But I'm not saying to live in fear. Because if you're living in fear, you're not with Christ. That's number one. You need to know that. It's not about the fear. It's about the joy that's awaiting us. We need to, and especially men, need to be men, and women need to be women, and it's really that simple. It's really that simple. And this confusion that we get, especially from the young guys at the St. Francis house, you know, one guy was, we, we have these group meetings from time to time, and one of the guys had said to me, he goes, did you just judge me? I said, yeah. <laughs> well, you can't judge me. I said, really? I said, well, I'm judging you right now the way you're speaking to me on your education. And I'm judging you on your clothing. I'm judging you on your attitude. How are you judging me? Your moral compass is judgment. Judge everything. Am I judging whether that soul is going to go to heaven or hell? No. Am I judging the situation? Definitely. Undoubtedly. We were talking about rap music. I don't allow it in the house. I'm judging rap music. Absolutely. It's horrible. It's negative. You don't like it because it's not in your, you know, your age group. You like 70s and 80s. I said, I do like 70s and 80s, but here's something you don't know. I am a musician, and there is a such thing as good music and bad music. Not because I like it or dislike it, because it's either negative or positive. And the music that you're listening to right now is talking about women. And it's not very nice. As a matter of fact, it's disgusting. And I won't allow it in my house. And I would be doing you a disservice if I allowed you to listen to it. That's it. We're done. It's over. Now, many things in our house are negotiable. There's no question about it. But some things are not. And I take a stand on it. And I'm glad that I, was, I took that position over the years because some of the men now that lived with and lived in our house for 15 years, left when they got married, take that same stand with their own children. But before that, they were living in confusion. Total, total confusion. See, all our our hearts are longing for the truth. We, We were created for the truth. And we do our children and our grandchildren a tremendous disservice when we don't tell them the truth when we're afraid to hurt their feelings. If their feelings are wrong, then tell them. Take a stand. You know, a lot of young guys, I'll ask them when they move into the house, what do you want to do, do when you grow up? I want to be a movie star. You want to be a movie star. Okay, well, a star is nothing but a ball of gas. All right? A star is nothing. I want to be rich. In which way? You want to have a lot of money, you want to have joy, you want to have happiness, a good family. What does rich mean? I knew when I was young, I thought rich meant to have a lot of money. I made that mistake. Terrible mistake. Terrible. Money never made me healthy. Money never made me happy. It's just a vicious, vicious cycle. 
I'm not saying if you have money, it's a bad thing. For me, it wasn't a good thing. It didn't, it didn't work out the way I thought it was supposed to work out. You want to go to Hollywood. Okay, well, I don't watch a lot of TV, but something shook me last week when I was watching a small portion of the Golden Globe Awards. Okay. Christian Bale. Always like Christian Bale. I like them. Now, I know that Hollywood is not Christ-centered, right? We all know that. Christian Bale, and I quote, said this, Thank you, Satan, for giving me inspiration. Blatantly, blatantly, in our lifetime, we're seeing this. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So I got into the film business because of those particular situations that are going on. I wanted to create beauty, hope, faith. A lot of people will say, you know, grassroots films, if you've seen any of my work, you know, that you're a Catholic company, a Catholic film company. I'm not. I'm a film company. We happen to be Catholic. So all of our morals and what we believe are going to be in the work that we do. I don't compromise. I made a film called The Human Experience about 10 years ago. It was a pro-life film. Never mentions the word pro-life. Never mentions the word abortion. Never even mentions the word Catholic. It just is. Because that's how we evangelize. That's how we go out into the world. That's why you have a group like this. Because what's important to you, obviously, is Christ. But how do you bring Christ into the world? How do you bring him into your job? Your families, you know how to do that. But what about everyday situations? I'm not saying anybody should do this, but I worked for AT&T after my conversion experience. My spiritual director said, you need to get a job. I didn't need money. I didn't need anything. I just needed to be with Christ. Well, in order to see that your conversion experience is real, work for one year, out, go back out into the world. I didn't want to do that, but I took his direction, and I did it. Father Pio Mandato. I'm working in AT&T. Turns out to be that um, cell phones were just beginning. So I have a knack for sales. I became the highest paid <laughs> you know, cellular cell phone guy on the East Coast in the United States for AT&T. Making a lot of money, making a lot of other people money. And I had a little statue of the Blessed Mother on my desk. And the vice president of the company walks in and said, you can't have that on your desk. I said, I can't have what on my desk? I wanted him to say it. I wanted him to own it. He goes, that picture. I said, picture of who? He goes, Mary. I said, well, I'm not taking it off my desk. I just think you should know that, you know? Now, I know that I'm sending his kids to school and buying his cars and everything else, you know? And I'm making him look real good. And he wants me to keep producing, but I'm about to stop, you know? And he goes, well, you have to understand that, you know, we don't, we don't bring religion into, he goes, are you wearing a cross on your lapel? Uh, yeah, I had a, a little cross on my lapel, you know? He goes, you can't have that either. I said, Listen, you know, I hate to disappoint you, you know, but I'm not taking it off. I'm not taking it off. It's who I am. He said, yeah, but, you know, you have to understand that 
this is AT&T, and we sign your checks. I said, this is AT&T, and my customers sign my checks. That's where I get my money from. You're fortunate enough to put your name on it. Let's just call it what it is. I said, I could walk across the street and work for the competition. I'm not a big shot, but don't tell me what to do when it comes to Christ. Don't tell me what, it's not going to work with you. You know, I didn't want to say negative things like you're going to lose this battle and, and all these things. But he knew he lost. And he had a lot to lose. He had a lot to lose. A friend of mine had come in. I was at this party that was in our store. And a gentleman comes in. And I was like fish out of water at these parties. Uh, he comes in and he goes, oh, my God. He goes, he goes, you have a picture of the Blessed Mother on your, on your desk? I said, yeah, I just got back from Medjugorje. Isn't it beautiful? He goes, you're not allowed to have that. I said, I know. They told me they were going to, like, I uh, had to take it off, but I told them no. He goes, you told them no? Anyway, I got into a prayer group with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what a prayer group was when I came back from Medjugorje. But I didn't know what I was going to do, and I knew I had to pray. And he said, listen, I live in Farmingdale. You know, come over to my house. I'm married, and uh, we're going to have this little prayer meeting, and we're charismatic, and we're this, and we're that. I went. I went. I believe these people, you know, like I still know them today. We're still friends today. They saved my spiritual life because we prayed together. They taught me how to pray in like a group like this, which I never did before. What's important to you? How do you take Christ into the world? I'm not advocating that you should do what I did by any stretch of the imagination, you know. But you do have a responsibility in, in some way, shape, or form to bring Christ to your friends, to your co-workers. You do. I mean, because if you don't, you, you may be the only person that ever does. You don't know if you're going to save souls. But you should be trying. We all should be trying. And when I've discovered it, and I've been to third world countries and spent a lot of time there, honestly, in the, I've never met a depressed person in a third world country yet. Not one. I've been in the like, huts in Malawi where children... Little children, like seven, eight years old, have to walk two or three miles to get a gallon of uh, water. They were the happiest kids I ever met in my life. They were happy. But they were also Christ-centered. <laughs> they all prayed. They all believed in God. They all had hope. And that's what I'm hoping that you would offer to people in the world, people outside this group, is hope somehow, some way. I can offer hope very simple to people because I'm still here. I've been through a divorce. I just started talking about this. I've been divorced for over 30 years. I've never spoken about it until the last year for some reason. Maybe I've been healed of all of the, you know, insanity that goes along with it. And, and, and maybe, you know, you'll see that people do survive it, you know. I mean, when I was going through my conversion experience, I had two choices, follow God or put a bullet in my head. That's how bad it got for a while. Plus, I have two children. Turns out that I wound up raising my boys myself. There was mental illness in the, in the whole thing and, you know, whatever. I'm going to go through the gory details. But you probably know someone who's been divorced, someone in your family. Maybe there's people here. I don't know. The devil's having a ball destroying families. And I'm one of those people where the family was, was not totally destroyed, but hurt really bad. I mean, this scars there hurt really bad. Unfortunately, my two sons do not talk to their mother. My youngest boy, Christopher, who's 30, was living at my house with his wife before he moved. 
And as he was getting ready to leave, he goes, Dad, if there's anything you want me to do, anything you want me to do before I leave to move to Australia, what is it you want me to do? I said, Chris, reconcile with your mother. And his face dropped. He goes, what? I said, reconcile with your mother. He goes, well, it's never going to happen, Dad. I said, well, you asked me what I wanted. That's what I wanted. I said, you know what? You're married. Get your wife up here. Why am I talking to you alone? Get your wife up here. So she came up. I sat them both down. I said, Lisa, Christopher just asked me a question, and I want to know what your thoughts are. I said to him, reconcile with your mother before you leave. You're leaving the country. This is very important. This is a healing. She goes, I guess you forgot how she was. And I did. I think that's a good thing, in a way. I did. She said, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm still praying that my son will reconcile with his mother because it's good for him. And it's also good for her. If you're Christ-centered, this is your life. It's up and it's down, and it's down and it's up. But you never give up, ever. And the reason I say that, and I say that very strongly, I would just look at the Stations of the Cross and I'd go, yeah, that's what he meant. You know, for me, on a personal level, that's what he meant, get back up again. You know, I was carrying my cross, like you're carrying your own cross. You know. Jesus is here with us present now, as we know. I find that most, most young people that come through the St. Francis house, or people that I meet, or people that I counsel, they live in the past. They live in the past. They worry about the future, and they miss the moment. And this is where we are. What a waste of time. What a waste of good time. You know? So as I'm getting older, I am sharing with you that I am beginning to realize that I missed the boat on a few occasions, quite frankly. I mean, I was at the airport when my ship came in. You know, It's like, here we are enjoying this. Here we are together at this moment. It's really all we have. You've heard this a hundred times, but in your own life, after you go home, you might think about this, or you may come up to a situation and say it's really not that important. These things are really not that important. What's really important is our relationships with each other. And, and our most important relationship is our relationship with Christ. It's the most important relationship you can have in your life. If you have that, everything else, you know, because who's in charge of your house? So once we've established those facts, then we're free. Then we have the freedom to live the way God wants us to live. You know, God has never really taken anything away from us, ever. Because I hear from the young guys, well, we're not allowed to do this. Well, we're not allowed to do that. Too many rules, too many this, too many that. You know? I don't like organized religion. Well, what do you like, disorganized religion? I mean, what are your options here? You know? <laughs> of course you have to have organized religion. Where there's organization, there's Christ. Where there's chaos, there's the devil. And we, we need to just sort of like, that's it. There's really, you don't have to go into too much theology, folks. It's nice to do that, and it's great to have conversations about that. But it's good or evil. It's, it's not both. It's one or the other. And as you get into, you know, uh, your life and you're working, and it's very easy to get caught up. Very, very easy to watch television and believe what they say. You know, I was at, I was at a, uh, a little dinner party 
uh, it was my birthday, some of the young people who were now in their 40s who I raised wanted to take me out for a birthday party at my favorite Italian restaurant. Of course I said yes. There was like 10 of us, right? We sit down at the table, and of course, who comes up? Trump. Trump always seems to come up, right? Good or bad, like him or dislike him, he's in the conversation, right? So, where I am, everybody's Democrat in, in, in New York. They're all Democrats, all right? So one of the guys had said to me, well, you know, Joe, uh, we know that you like Trump. <laughs> How do you know what I like? You don't know what I like. Well, we know you're a Republican. I said, well, well stop. Stop. Wait, wait. You know, you think you know too much. I'm an independent. I'm on the side whoever God is on the side for. That's it. That's it. Now, they said, oh, well, Trump's pro-life. I said, yeah. Am I taking a political stand in this room? I don't care. All I know is I'm pro-life. I'm pro-life. He's working for us. We're not working for him. He's working for us. This is a good thing to me. Whether you agree with me or disagree with me, I don't know. It doesn't matter. You have your own thoughts. But I'm pro-life. I believe in that what he's doing is is good in that respect. So one of the young people said, so uh, you, can't get over the f- you just can't get over the abortion thing? I said, no. <laughs> you mean like not even for a second? No. We're talking about children, guys. We're talking about killing children. Of course I'm on the side of pro-life. And I'm sure everybody in this room is too, whether you like the guy or you don't like the guy. And they said, well, we don't really like him. I said, well, he's from Queens, New York. What can I tell you? You don't like his attitude. I totally get it. You think I'm in love with the guy? No. Do I like him or I don't like him? He's pro-life. That's all I care about. I don't care about the other things. And so um, this is how I bring Christ into their lives. And then one of the young men that was with us was abused by one of the priests during the scandal. He's 40 years old now. He's, He's worked through it, you know. And he asked me, he goes, well, Joe, what do you think about that? What do you think about the scandal in the church? I said, I have to be very honest with you, Raphael. No one is more hurt by the scandal in the church than Jesus Christ. No one. And he shows up to Mass every Sunday. And so should you. That's my answer. Well, I'm not going to put any more money in the box. I said, well, I guess I have to double mine. Because we're not leaving. The church has been through some pretty rough things since day one, (laughs) you know, since day one. And we'll get through this too. And I think what will happen is it will be be a holy church again one day. As long as we stand strong, as long as we stick together, you know, that's what he wants us to do. I know, you know in your heart, and I know people that have been hurt by the church. I am very fortunate. I no great priests. I did my whole life. And when the scandal came out, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Like, I, I couldn't imagine anything could be so terrible. I never knew the bad guys. I think God really protected me through all that. So because I was in the film business, it, you know, I would go to Google and you would put priest or Catholic, and the first thing that would come up back, in, back when it first started was all the negativity, and I really had tears in my eyes. I said, you know, maybe we can do something about this. 
maybe we're crazy enough that we can do something because something needs to be done because they're not all bad. I know this. I never met a bad one. So I was approached by the USCCB, and they wanted me to make a film for them about vocations. Now, I already had this film in mind when they came to me. It's called Fishers of Men. Some people here may have seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah. All right. So I told the USCCB that, okay, I, I want to make this film because of the scandal, and what I want to be able to do is when Google comes up, that this film comes up because it's a positive thing. I said, so if we could work together on this, I think maybe, they go, great, Joe. So he brings me, in, this guy brings me in this book about this big, and it's called Fishers of Men, and it's got all the things that the vocation directors need to do, okay? And then, and I'm looking at this book, and it weighs about five pounds. I'm like, holy smokes. I've been working with priests a long time. They're never going to read this book, you know? And so I'm looking at the priest, and I said, well, okay, well, um, where's the DVD go? He opens up the back of the book, and he goes, right there. And I'm like, I'm not going to put my DVD in the back of the book, you know? No, 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 no. So I'm thinking to myself, how do I tell this very young, fine man who's representing the USCCB that I have to put that whole entire book into one DVD? That's the direction we really need to go in. And so I told him what my idea was. We're going to take a, a kid, and we're going to flip over a car, and he's going to die, and the priest is going to come, and he's going to give him absolution, save his soul, and the boy's going to go to heaven. They were completely dumbfounded. They looked at me, and they said, what? are you talking about? I said, we're going to just make a little movie. You know, it'll be like 30 minutes. And, um, and the priest is going to make sure, you know, he's going to see this. It's, it, and this is a true story. I told him it's a true story about a priest who sees an accident. And, and, and Anyway, they wouldn't go for it. They said, this will never happen. I said, well, what do you guys want? They said, well, we want this priest to say this, this priest to say that. I said, oh, you want talking heads. Okay. I said, well, here's your deposit back. I don't do those kind of films. As a matter of fact, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I'm going to make the film without you. And they said, well, Joe, really, no one says no to the bishops. I said, well, we learn something every day, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> because I can't do your film because your film is going to be a total failure, number one. Number two, you guys haven't made a film in 30 years that anybody would even watch or remember. He gave me my, my money back. And he, they took a chance. And I would say that this one film alone, the boys are in it from the St. Francis house. They're all the actors. We really did flip over a car. We really did put it on fire. We really did close off the Seaford Oyster Bay Expressway in both directions. And, you know, we lit the car on fire and filmed the whole thing of the boy being thrown out. And literally, this one particular film that's only 18 minutes, really, um, sold hundreds, of th hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies throughout the world. But it was evangelization in a way that was never been seen before. And that's what you're asked to do. You know, so I did it with a film, you know, and I did it at the height of the scandal, you know. But there's a scandal going on every day in the church, it seems. You know, there's a scandal going on in our families, our neighborhoods, whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. We're just people. We're just wounded people. And that's why we need Jesus, right? That's why he came. So... You know, you're asked to go out and evangelize in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what that is. You may not know what it is. When I moved to Brooklyn, when I took the house over, I didn't know what it was either. But I'll end with saying, Father Benedict Rochelle, who was my spiritual director for all those years, gave me some very wise 
things to think about. When I said I didn't know how I was going to do it, and I didn't know what I was going to say, and I didn't know what the next move was, he said, Joe, just take one step, and God will lead you. I said, well, I want to do this project. I want to do this project, but I have no money. He said, great. Start the project with no money. If God really wants it to happen, you'll finish it. Every film that I did, I started without a penny. And every film, we finished. So whatever, whatever it may be for you, whatever it may be for you, it's really not that difficult if you have faith. Is just take the next step and pray, and God will lead you the next step. Don't take two. You'll fall off a bridge. Because you'll be doing what you want to do. And that's what I was doing. I was doing what I wanted to do. Of course, I thought that's what God wanted, but I didn't know. But the spiritual direction was, take one step, God will lead you the rest of the way. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I really appreciate the time together. Well, we've been in, uh, the St. Francis House has been there since 1967, so we're fairly well known in circles, Catholic circles. And through the work of Youth 2000 that I did, most of the young men came through the retreats. Some of them came in and boom, they were homeless. I mean, the first family that I worked with, believe it or not, I was invited to go to the Bronx. They were gonna bury a woman. She had six kids and they were orphans. She died of AIDS. She was an HI, she was a, a heroin. She was needles and stuff. She died of AIDS back in the day, 25 years ago. And the friar said, listen, can you help us with this family? And I said, yeah, of course. And I went there, it was November, and they said, just take care of the kids. We're going to bring them over here, and then we're going to bury the mother, and then we're going to bring her to the cemetery. They had no money. It's all, all done. The friars did everything, and we're going to just bury her. But you need to, ta you need to take the boys. I said, uh, how, how old are they? He said, Jim's 18, Raphael's 15, Matthew's 9. The girls, we have a place for the twins to go to. I said, I can't take the, I can't take the boys. I could take the 18, maybe the 15-year-old, but a 9-year-old? No, I, I mean, I can't do that. They said, all right, we'll just stay in the back of the church. We're going to bring them in. They bring the kids in. Matthew, the nine-year-old, it's November. He has no shoes on. Yeah. And so I'm looking at him, and I said, is your name Matthew? Yeah. I said, Matthew, where's your shoes? I don't know. So I sent somebody out to get him shoes. And the older boy had just gotten out of Rikers Island. Raphael, who you know? Sanchez. And uh, Jim wasn't talking to anybody, the 18-year-old. He, he knew what was going on. And so um, they brought the body in, and you know, all these terrible things were going on. And the kids realized that their mother was gone. They had no place to go. And so they, the friars just looked at me, and I went, I'll take him. <laughs> you know, I'll take him. I can't keep him, but I'll take him. You know? So Raphael stayed with me for oh, maybe 10 years. Matthew, I got into uh, foster care. He only stayed with me for a very short time. He stayed with his brother in the, in the same room. Um, but I got him into foster care. Matthew now is 36 years old. <laughs> and he got married and his wife's pregnant, you know. But they survived it, you know. And we kept the family together all these years. So they're, they're still together. And actually, uh, we celebrated my birthday last week. They all showed up. And they, they brought gifts. Can you imagine? They were so grateful. But from, it's usually from the friars or just people that we know. Yeah. Well, the company is Grassroots Films, all right? We have a website, grassrootsfilms.com, 
And some of our, so there's a, you can see some of our films were up here. And so if you just go to the website, you won't see them on YouTube or anything like that because they're real films, so you actually have to buy them or download them or something. I'm going to share just a quick, a quick God moment that it's been in my life, um, really in work. And um, as I look around here, you know, I know a lot of the men um, a lot better than I know the wives. I know a lot of the men take their careers very, very seriously. And I actually think that's a huge reason why the men are here. Because not only are they leaders right, in their work world, they're leaders at home. One of the things that, uh, that happens when you run a business, and I run a business, is there are many times over the years that the business runs you. You're actually a slave to the business. And, and you forget that you're in charge of what's happening and you let the business run you and run your life. Um, probably no different than sometimes it might even happen at the St. Francis house, for example. You start to have, I start to have the thought of, I'm in charge, this is all on me. If I don't get this done or this done or this done, these things are gonna happen. I realized I had stopped praying for God's leadership at work. Right, I'm praying for all of these sick people. I'm praying for my family and my friends, right? I'm trying to be there for my family, but that's a struggle because I'm at work all the time. And I realize I've not relinquished or somehow I've fallen back into this trap of not giving this company that God's blessed me with to God. And uh, a friend of mine uh, came to work for me, came to work for the company, and wasn't the right fit, and he left. I needed a right-hand person is what I really needed. All right, we have a lot of employees. Everybody can find living, breathing people, but, right? But you need good people. You need people that buy into the mission. And two days later, this gentleman who I knew of walked into the office and talked to one of my project managers and said, do you think Walt would be interested in hiring me? Well, he's a devout Christian. He's a general manager uh, with the company that he left. Since then... Um, and, bef and before then, we have now had three hires that are only come from God. And um, it was by relinquishing control back to God that these blessings have come. It's so easy to allow people to take your joy away from you. It's easy. And it's also amazing how easy I am just willing to give it away. i got to be honest with you. I really don't care if we make money or not. What I care about is do people know that I love Christ? Because if they don't, I've done nothing. And all those times when I'm stealing time away from my precious family, if I'm not introducing God to these people, then I'm wasting my time. If at the end of the day, all I'm focused on is my profit line, I'm wasting my time. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, when my dad was first starting the company, we, we, were, we were pretty poor, we were pretty poor. I remember getting splashed on because the, the Volkswagen bug that my mom drove, the floorboards were all rusted out. And I remember we were hitting these puddles. And I always remember getting splashed every time I hit a puddle. And I came home like sopping wet um, one day, and my dad's like, that's it. We're getting a new car. We can't do this anymore. I remember seeing Corvettes, right? I, I was just had this like infatuation with Corvettes. I remember getting older, and uh, this is well before I could, I could ever have even dreamed of possibly affording a, a Corvette. And my dad said, Walt, the goal should never be to own or, you know, a Corvette. The, the, the beautiful thing about it is, is knowing you could. Knowing you could. He said, because you will get to a point in your life that it's just knowing you could and choosing not to 
is far more amazing, far more powerful than actually being and just doing it. And I got to be honest with you, it's like um, I, I was listening to Catholic Radio maybe a year or so ago. I heard this gentleman got on the radio, and um, he said, you can never, ever, ever morally justify driving a Corvette. And I said, dang it! That's it. It's over. It's totally over. And I know you all uh, prayerfully and financially support Mass Impact. Please consider how many families that you guys know would love to be here and love to be involved with Mass Impact that you could, you could share and ask if they would consider to, to help support us. Heavenly Father, you've bestowed upon us gifts of immeasurable worth, but the greatest was the gift of your only begotten Son. We entrust ourselves to him. Send your Holy Spirit that we might think and act as you would have us think and act. And we raise this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, Mass Impact and Ignite has been going across the Northwest Ohio now for, for months, and, and thousands of people, literally thousands of people in our diocese have experienced that love. We believe that he said what he meant and meant what he said when he proclaimed that his body is real food and his blood is real drink. Simply put, Mass Impact is a nonprofit movement seeking the heart of God in the very heart of his Catholic Church. Uh, people just keep kept coming and coming. Not just in a moment, but, but to surrender their entire lives. We desire our hearts to be moved by what moves his. And to see that happening monthly. We are responding to an urgent call in an urgent time. The recent Pope, John Paul said, now's the time. This is the moment. We are taking big steps in faith throughout our diocese and beyond. I want to buckle my chin strap and take the field. And we are seeing tremendous growth. I mean, I'm just roused and emboldened to mission, to do something. We cannot do it alone. We need you right now. Please partner with us. Go to massimpact.us right now and click on the Contribute tab. If you and I respond in faith right now, we will see souls in heaven who would not have been there had we said no. It was nothing short of amazing. Does it have that same kind of effect on you? Please go to massimpact.us and contribute. It's time to move.